0: Hi, we're going to be talking about violence and sexual violence in this series. There's also some strong language. Please take care while listening.
1: Welcome back to the official companion podcast of HBO's I'll Be Gone in the Dark. I'm your host, Nancy Miller. This week, the documentary series grapples with Michelle McNamara's sudden death. And it focuses on the people in her life determined to finish her manuscript for All Begone Gone in the Dark, all while hunting for the Golden State Killer. Michelle's writing and investigative reporting is part of the reason why the Golden State Killer is behind bars right now. It's why there's an HBO documentary on this case and her work. And it's why I'm here hosting this podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about Michelle's work with two of the people most responsible for ensuring its completion, her husband, Patton Oswald, and her collaborator and partner in crime-solving, Paul Haynes. But first, let's check in with the filmmakers Liz Garbus and Elizabeth Wolfe. Episode five deals with what we'll call Michelle's legacy— And I think this is the hardest for me to watch as someone who knew her in a professional capacity and on a personal way. But we are talking about Michelle's state of mind and the pressure of a few different things that seem to be happening at the same time. That's working on Golden State Killer, working on a book. And I just wanted to get a sense from you of what point you decided to devote time in an episode to Michelle and what she was going through psychologically, emotionally, and how would you best describe this?
2: Michelle put a tremendous amount of pressure on herself to succeed, to get things done on time and on schedule, and to find a killer who had eluded authorities for over four decades, and a responsibility to the victims and their trauma to do that, and a responsibility to herself to write an amazing book Probably feelings of wanting to live up to her parents' ideas of who she was, trying to live up to be the kind of mother she wanted to be and wife, and also her own trauma of having been assaulted. It's a lot. Unlike making a documentary, writing is so solitary. I mean, yes, she had law enforcement working with her, but after she got that mother load, she seemed very, very, very alone with all of those images, all of that work. It was a very dark place her.
1: Elizabeth, do you want to speak to that? I'd love to hear you too.
2: First
0: and foremost, we wanted to approach and explore Michelle's story with empathy. And we also wanted to explore how the darkness or not dealing with the darkness and dealing with your inner demons and problems can creep up on you and how it's not any one thing. It's really easy to hide these things until it's too late. And that was a really important thing that we wanted to explore throughout the series and unpack in this episode.
1: I joked with Michelle, like, when we were finishing this story and it was like, we're done, publish. And I was like, ah, I just, like, want to have a bottle of wine and, like, hold my cat. And I had nightmares. I had a lot of stress working on this story. And this was just a little tiny sliver. And I know Michelle had to continue. I moved on to other stories about all kinds of stuff. Similarly, you both and the team that you're working with have been in this for months and months. Did you experience any stress or any sort of mental anguish in pulling this together, seeing images that I know that I've seen, stuff that you know was probably more than what you maybe wanted to see? And did you have to manage anything in a special way to make sure that your mental health was okay?
0: Yeah. You know, we got Michelle's mother load, and there are images that you can't unsee, There was a low point for me in the edit where I was trying to explain my despair to my husband. You know, I said, Michelle dies every day for us. And it was really hard to get to know someone and have to live with that every day. You know, the interviews with the survivors were hard and very intimate in the interviews themselves. But then we're in the edit and we're re-watching these real experiences, these memories. And, you know, there were weeks where there wasn't a dry eye in our staff. And I mean, it's hard to say this, but, you know, Michelle in many ways was a cautionary tale for us. And so early on, we all talked about having a work-life balance, being attentive to our mental health. The months that we went on And did our interviews. You know, I personally meditated twice a day. I really was very protective of my off hours. I honored my weekends. And we made a point of talking about secondary PTSD when you're in this material with everyone on our team. And it was something that Liz and her husband, Dan, and the whole Story Syndicate company
2: was very attentive to. The day Michelle died that morning, Patton looked in on her. And she was asleep. He could hear her breathing heavily. And he thought, oh, good, she's having a good lie-in. I'm going to, you know, give her her space. And, and he puts coffee next to her bed. He's such a sweet, attentive husband, you know, because he knows when she wakes up after a good lie-in, she'll appreciate that. And then after texting her a little bit, you know, and he comes back later and she's no longer breathing, we shot Michelle's bedroom. You know, we created a set for Michelle's bedroom. And we had the shot of the coffee cup on the side of the bed in her travel mug every frickin' time I'm reviewing and I see that freaking coffee cup, I wanna scream. And of course, intellectually, I know it's my set, you know, it's, it's something, but the feeling of living in that loop of that coffee cup coming next to the room and that being the divide between her being alive and her being dead causes a lot of anguish. But of course, for Patton, it's all very real. It wasn't a set. So I know for him, watching these episodes is nearly impossible.
1: We'll hear from Patton firsthand on how difficult the documentary process was for him later in this episode. But first up, we have a conversation with Michelle's researcher, Paul Haynes. After striking up an online friendship with Michelle McNamara and trading theories back and forth on a cold case forum, Paul Haynes moved to L.A. in 2015 to help with her investigations. After Michelle's death, Paul was part of the team that, in the midst of their grief, took on the task of finishing her book. I'll be speaking with Paul about what it was like to work so closely with Michelle and how he managed to move forward with this staggering responsibility. Paul Haynes. Hi. Who I know better as the kid, at least initially. Pushing 40 now. I'll embrace it, you know? (laughs) I was going to ask, when Michelle and I started the magazine project, you were the kid. And I envisioned a backwards baseball cap in a dark room, like something out of like an 80s hackers movie. Oh, yeah. What was the reality versus what I envisioned I
3: don't want to spoil your illusion, actually. (laughs) (laughs) The reality is far less romantic. Uh So yeah, I was 28 years old, and the law firm that employed me shut down. I ended up moving back home with my parents. I long had an interest in unsolved stranger crimes, particularly serial murders. And this was a case that had been on my radar for a few years. yeah, And unlike other cases that had interested me, this case compelled me to use online resources and public records databases to maybe identify the offender. And it was never my ambition to be a citizen detective or an armchair sleuth. In fact, I disdain those designations to a degree. No offense to any citizen sleuths that might be listening. I think the climate has changed over the last decade, Mm -hmm. largely thanks to Michelle's book and My Favorite Murder and the explosion of true crime as a genre, Mm -hmm. but this is just not what I envisioned myself doing. And I had no real interest in being the hero that solved this case. I had no interest in being publicly identified with this case because I was well aware of how unusual my interest was. But I realized that this was something I was very good at. I wanted to know this offender's identity and I knew the answer was out there somewhere. I just couldn't stop until I found it.
1: My recollection of Michelle's perception of you before you ever met in person was her hoping to impress you. Really? Yeah. Tell me about that first connection that you guys made. Did she stand out to you, or what was your perception of her before you knew who she was?
3: Well, I was a fan of True Crime Diary. I would read the entire website. There was a particular sensibility that Michelle had that was very consistent with my own And I don't read a lot of true crime because I don't like the approach that a lot of writers take. It's either sanctimonious or it's kind of sensational. And Michelle took neither approach. Michelle was very honest about what the hook was for her. And it was the same hook that drew me in.
1: My sense was you and Michelle were Mm complementary in your skills and being extremely rigorous. Yeah. Tell me more about how you complemented each other as working partners.
3: Yeah, I, I think it was certainly symbiotic. She had access to resources and people that I didn't. And, uh, you know, Michelle also was aware of Patton's currency mm-hmm. as a draw for homicide detectives. Larry Poole, for instance, was, was a big fan of King of Queens. And so she bribed him with a box set.
1: Larry Poole is one of the uh, investigators that is in Orange County.
3: Yeah, he was with Orange County. Uh-huh. And he's actually one of the cops that was in pursuit of O.J. Simpson in uh, the mid-90s in that Bronco.
1: Um, I didn't know that.
3: Yeah. So he has a couple of claims to fame, Larry Poole. Wow. But yeah, Patton was kind of a port of entry to a lot of detectives who otherwise are very reticent about sharing information with people outside of law enforcement. So it was kind of miraculous that Michelle was able to, over the course of the four or so years that she worked on this before she passed, cultivate the trust of so many people in law enforcement. And that's something that I don't think I would have been able to do, at least not at that time. And I've inherited a lot of her relationships with those people. And so they trust me by association. But Michelle had a particular finesse that admittedly I lack, or at least lacked, past tense. (laughs) So I don't want to self-deprecate too much.
1: So the depiction of Michelle, and it's her own depiction, is stay-at-home mom by day with the goldfish crackers lining her purse, which is in itself a staggeringly self-deprecating way of describing mm-hmm. uh, a particular talent. But she's doing this at night. She puts her daughter to bed, and this is her alone, dark room, blue screen on her face, and this is where the work is done. How does that translate as a collaboration? And how did you work together together?
3: We did our own thing for most of the month, and then we would get together two or three times a month to compare notes, and we would communicate pretty much daily via email. And if something was really pressing or exciting, she would call me or text me. She would occasionally give me specific tasks to do, and otherwise I would just like continue my plumbing of public records. This sort of work or this sort of activity is a solitary thing, Mm -hmm. and it is a nocturnal thing. I would find myself mining data reservoirs deep into the night, sometimes after sunrise. And it's the sort of thing that I couldn't stop doing it until I was absolutely exhausted and then I'd go to bed and get up and do it again. But I was unemployed and I was living with my parents. Michelle was a wife and mother and a professional with a routine. And I couldn't imagine having to shoehorn this into that kind of routine that would have been detrimental to my health. This was detrimental to my health, but that would have been exponentially more. Mm
1: -hmm. So you actively decide to move across country and become Michelle's research partner, and then tragedy strikes. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you to lose this important person in your work life?
3: Yeah, I mean, Michelle's passing is something that I, I couldn't have anticipated. It was the last thing that I imagined might happen. And when I got that email from Sarah Standard, asking me to call her, that was a very unusual thing. Sarah had never emailed me before, and it sounded urgent. And I hadn't heard from Michelle all day.
1: Sarah is one of Michelle's closest friends from growing up. Is that right?
3: From Oak Park, yeah. I called the number that she gave me. Sarah's husband answered. He told me, you know, I, I have some bad news. Michelle passed away this morning. And hearing something like that, it, it, its I can't describe the the level of shock. I almost immediately went numb because I didn't know how to process it. And for the next 24 hours, I remained stunned until it hit the news cycle. And that confirmed that it was something that happened in the world, and, and I, I just broke down. And that whole weekend, I was just pacing my apartment and sobbing, and then I heard from Patton's assistant on Sunday, she had telephoned me, and then she had followed up via email, to assure me that the book was going to be
1: finished. There has been much made about the emotional toll of absorbing a lot of the information about the case. And it's specific to Michelle. But if I'm not mistaken, you're looking at the same stuff. So what's the difference between how you processed what you were seeing and and how she processed what you were seeing?
3: I don't know that there was a great deal of difference. You grow desensitized to a degree over time. It just becomes puzzle pieces because I'd read Larry Crompton's book, Sudden Terror. That had been my formal introduction, I think, to the case beyond you know what was available on the forums and what had been broadcast on TV. And so seeing it packaged in the original police reports, reading those case files, seeing the, the victims describe their ordeals in their own words, seeing the transcripts of the interviews, it does provide a dimension to them that previously, I, I, you know, I don't know that Larry Crompton quite succeeded at conveying that. But you, you do start to see these people as human beings and you're a beat closer to the actual terror that they experienced. But, you know, there is a stiltedness about it.
1: You might be angry with me when I say this, and that's okay. I see the mother lode as a pivotal mistake in the process of this book. It became this abundant, procrastinating tool for Michelle. Mm-hmm. You've seen pretty much everything that was in there. Did any of that information make a difference in the end?
3: It's interesting you you say that. Until this moment, I hadn't considered the fact that the motherlode was the ultimate red herring. D'Angelo's name was nowhere in any of the files, as far as I know, that any of the departments aggregated. This person was never a suspect. He was never a person of interest. He was never connected to this investigation in any way. So we resolved a lot of subsidiary mysteries, but not the primary mystery. It's only the forensic genealogy that would have and did ultimately identify this offender. And so am I remiss about the fact that I'm not the one who identified this offender and that our work didn't directly lead? I I, I mean, it's arguable whether or not it did, but certainly had Michelle McNamara never attached herself to this case, I feel it's highly likely it would still be in the unsolved pile.
1: I agree, and when I say mistake, it's more like the alternate universe where I want her to not die, the alternate universe where the editor's like, "Sorry, that's due. You can't do that. Just finish yeah. up the fucking book." Excuse my language. I mean,
3: Nancy, Nancy, it's heartbreaking that Michelle didn't live to see this offender identified and arrested, and that she's not here to enjoy the fruits of her work. It's really heartbreaking to think about, and. I try not to think about it too much because it it really does make me sad. And I've experienced a great deal of sadness with respect to her death. And, you know, there's a point where I kind of want to put that in a drawer and close it.
1: I do want to give credence to the work that you guys did. And I asked this seven years ago. What if we catch the guy? What are you going to do, Michelle? What's Paul Haynes going to do? What happens to the kid? Okay, so here we are. It took a lot longer and the path to get there was really, really a lot more painful than we all thought. But for you, what's, what now?
3: I think that my interest in true crime is never gonna completely dissipate. It's unlikely I will ever immerse myself as completely in a case as I did East Area Rapist. But there are so many forgotten, neglected cases that I feel are highly solvable, that you know, using my platform to put a spotlight on those cases is something that interests me greatly.
1: Well, I look forward to seeing what you do next.
3: Oh, I appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Paul, for speaking with me. My next guest is Patton Oswald, who shares more about Michelle, this documentary, and what comes next. I was trying to remember the last time I saw you in person and it was celebratory just after her article was published, I think in 2013.
4: Oh my God, we went to a restaurant. (laughs) Oh, it's another world. (laughs) We sat in a restaurant and ordered food.
1: I think we may have sipped each other's cocktails. Like back then you could do things like that, like share plates. In a strange way, it is another kind of celebration that We're able to share today because of this series. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Is it okay to say that I'm I'm happy for you that you're able to do this?
4: It's like this glimmer of happiness in the middle of what's still a very sad thing. I mean, the spectrum of emotions in this, from despair for Michelle to kind of relief and vindication for the survivors, it is such a messy emotional achievement. It's rough to be in the middle of it.
1: Yes. I am going to just time travel a little bit with you because you are actually the person who first introduced me to Michelle. That's right. And it was when I edited you for a Wired piece. Right. I was going through some emails <laughs> recently and I was like, 2010, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, that was a long time ago. Yeah. And I remember you saying, if you want to meet a really good, great writer. Like, it was okay working with me, but if you want to meet a really great writer, you have to meet my wife, Michelle. Yeah, And that's how she and I were first introduced, through you recognizing the value of her work and the potential that she and I might work together.
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I was so flattered to get to write for Wired and work with you, but there was a bit of an imposter syndrome there of... Well, I'm a comedian who's writing about pop culture and I'm trying to maybe have this land on some deeper levels, but it's still about pop culture. And meanwhile, my wife is doing this blog, True Crime Diary, where she's really is putting together cold cases. And I'm watching her using MapQuest and doing data mining and walking the scene of the crimes sometimes. So, Because I think you approached me about, do you have anything you maybe want to write for Los Angeles magazine or a, a more a California-centric thing? And I said, well... Let me point you in the direction of someone that's actually doing something genuinely amazing. And on top of it, writing about it in this very compelling way. And this was especially at the dawn of, I would say, click and swipe culture, where everything was quick blitz, listicles. And for her to be able to write in a way that could sustain your attention and concentration, which was necessary to keep interest in these cases alive, it blew me away every week she'd put up a new Entry and I I couldn't wait to read it.
1: Yeah, it's a compelling juxtaposition, right? Because your take on the internet circa 2010 was the internet has ruined everything. Yeah. (laughs) Everything that ever was available. Oh, what did you say? I can't remember the exact thing.
4: Everything that ever was available forever.
1: That's right. This idea that the internet spoiled everything. And looking at Michelle's work, it's the internet can solve anything
4: my God, now that you put that out there, I just realized she took the term everything that ever was available forever and turned that into a positive. You know, some of these cases she wrote about, some of the evidence were people's MySpace blogs and Facebook posts. They couldn't help but write about what they were doing. And now that's available. For that to be a condition that I saw as a negative, And then she said, well, hang on. That's just how unique her thinking was.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I've had the unique privilege of editing both of you. Writing is Freaking hard. Yes. It's a mountain. And if I were to compare editing you and editing Michelle, you are like sort of a downhill slalom skier. <laughs> you're like, shoo, shoo, shoo. You grab a flag, maybe you miss one, but you go down fast. And then you're like, oh, you want me to do that again? No problem. Within 24 hours, you're like, Boot-a-loop. you made it look effortless and it felt like there was a crowd cheering you on. <laughs> Michelle is. Free Solo. Wow, She's that rock climber whose creative wingspan that few people have Mm -hmm. with the fingers that are just the right size for those cracks. And when you look at this vertiginous rock face that you're like, nobody can climb that. Mm -hmm. We all just would stand at the bottom and watch her climb alone without a net. And then when you get to the top, you're all alone because no one else can do it. I mean, I have my experiences with each of you. But this is really about you and the, not just the preservation, but the nurturing of her legacy.
4: Well, the nurturing of her legacy is so much about what she wanted to do, which was to inspire and encourage others to do this, to look at cases. Because clearly a lot of police departments in terms of investigatory and cold case work are underfunded and neglected. The funds tend to be going to the wrong places, so it was up to a lot of citizen journalists that were willing to take the time and do the digging and put things together and just like with any group of people there are certain citizen journalists that are sloppy or have an agenda or really don't know their stuff but you see in the documentary paul holes was like when michelle approached me and laid out what she had i was like oh this is the real deal she's not just someone going i feel weird about like no she came to him with tons of evidence mapped out and he was like oh my God, we've got to look at this thing again. She put so much light on this, and the light came from the work that she did beforehand, made that light so bright that it was just undeniable.
1: I like that you said citizen journalist, mm-hmm. because it's not exactly detective work. Mm-hmm. It is the old school journalist, but also with that deep dive I remember Michelle said that people would say, like, when they Google something, most people stop at, like, the second screen. Yeah.
4: You go to page 56. Data mining is the least glamorous, least cop-like thing you can do. You look like an otter with a shell on its chest just kind of knocking at it for hours. But it's the paper trail. It's not a sexy thing you can show on the 6 o'clock news. It's not doors being kicked in. It's not drugs and guns on a table. It's just... People going through document after document after document. But when people start going through documents, that's when the real criminals start getting nervous because that's where the solutions are hiding.
1: So knowing that she had to have this huge archive of information, I remember a couple of days after she passed away, I felt like compelled. And I think I said this to you in the email that this is like the editor version of bringing over a casserole. Here's everything I have. Here's everything of hers that I have. Here's this podcast. Here's this PDF. Here's this other thing. And it sounds like everyone else you know who was involved with her did that too. In addition to the stuff that she had. Yes. So we're talking about a whole huge cache of stuff.
4: At first, I just had to lie down and get beaten up by grief. I learned very quickly through grief counseling that you're not going through this, you're being put through this. You've gotta get it out of your head that you have any agency right now. You're just gonna be put through this. Mm -hmm. One of my lifelines out was to start looking at this mountain of stuff and then going to people like Billy Jensen and Paul Haynes and her editor and just begging them, somebody help me get this book finished. Knowing who she was and how she felt about her writing, I would not have been able to live in the world with this book incomplete. I would not have been able to function if this book was not finished. It was almost like letting her spirit move on to the next world. And I don't like the term Michelle's husband finish her book. Michelle's husband begged other people to do it because I couldn't. And Billy Jensen and Paul Haynes stepped the fuck up and got it done.
1: So you've got a room in your house that looks like the last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. Oh, uh, you God. know, and, <laughs> and you've got a computer that has four terabytes of horrible things that nobody wants to see. So did you just point
4: to it and be like that? Take that? Yeah. Also... Boxes and boxes of files and thumb drives everywhere, two different laptops, recordings. And I just was like, Paul, Billy, please come over. And they helped to move it out. I was afraid that stuff would get moved or stuff would get lost. I wanted it in one secure location where I knew it would be safe.
1: So I totally understand your need to have Michelle's book finished. The thing I don't understand why. A documentary. Is this, like, an additional way of helping, or is this masochism?
4: I wasn't able to anticipate the level of masochism that it would be to me, especially looking at the rough cuts and looking at photographs and footage of things that I'd never seen. I mean, I already know how awful it is that she's gone, but then when you see moments of someone's life that you loved that you didn't see, and you just see even more pieces of them, it's unimaginable. I went through it and there's part of it that doesn't feel like it happened to me. The grief is so huge. But I think for me, I wanted to show how awful what this man did to these women and to these families and to the survivors. The amount of damage that this insect of a human being wanted to carve into the world by itself is so horrific. But it's such a testament to the strength of these women, who's, many of the survivors of whom I've met and You just can't believe how vibrant and alive they are in defiance of this man's hatred of life, basically. But then to also show how that had to sit and fester and almost wink out and dim and go dark and then to have Michelle come along and summon what she needed to summon out of herself to relight this fire and get the attention back on it. It's one thing to see that in the book, but it's from mostly her point of view. And then in the documentary, we could expand it to the victims, to the survivors, to the law enforcement people that were also just as frustrated and damaged by this guy. So to see all of that, I just thought that was equally as important.
1: Something that we see in this series, and you make a point of saying it, is that there are things about the person in your life, your main person, that you don't know. Yeah. And there's something I want to ask you, and my heart's beating faster because I'm It feels so delicate to me. So know that this is meant with great empathy. Did you know about what happened in Northern Ireland?
4: Yes. God, this is hard to talk about because I get so enraged. I mean, this happened, you know, decades before I met her. You know, there's that part of me that's like, I'd like to go to Belfast and search this guy out. But, you know, this isn't some dumb death wish movie. This is life and... It doesn't work that way. And I think that was another reason that she was drawn to this case. You see women, it's almost like they're being punished for being young and vibrant and alive in the world by a man that is threatened by that. And it's like incel taken to this mutated, amplified degree, you know, that attitude of how dare these women have agency and joy and autonomy outside of my control. Like that literally, it feels like that's where the rage comes from. And think of the time that this guy was operating in. It's the early 70s. Women are way more open and free. And there were just a lot of guys that were threatened by that. It's whenever you hear someone going, we got to go back to the good old days. They're saying, we got to go back to a time when fewer people had a chance to control their lives. And someone like me was at the top of the food chain. I did a book event in Sacramento for Michelle's book. Some of the survivors from his early rapes were there and I spoke to them afterward and I I just, I'm not gonna be able to get through this without crying. They were saying how they went to every one of his court arraignments and they would look right at him and he couldn't meet their gaze. He couldn't lift his head, he couldn't look at them. They were elevated souls in spite of what they had been put through And it enraged me thinking, why did they have to have this like sack of cement tied to their ankle for so long? Mm -hmm. But just like with Michelle and her assaulter in Belfast, they had defiantly like, now I'm going to live an amazing life. And I'm going to come visit you in court and look at you and you can't look at us. And you're completely diminished. And we've got our lives and our families. I went back to the hotel room that night and I was just sitting there bawling, thinking about them. It was so humbling. And it really like, they're like these forces of energy that I think about when I am thinking of the despair in the world. You know, when I'm worried about Alice or other people that I know that are vulnerable, or moments when I'm feeling vulnerable, and you just think of them and they're there pointing the way yeah. just by living. Mm-hmm. If I attempt to reach their level of grace and fail, I'll be a better person. Mm
1: hmm. So I'm assuming you've watched the series in completion.
4: Well, I'll be honest, I watched the first 4. Episode 4 ends with her death. Yeah. And I could not watch episodes 5 and 6 because I was so emotionally screwed up from watching the first 4. It's too effectively done in my opinion. You know, I mean, I'm sure anyone watching will go, this is a very well-made documentary, but from my point of view, very very hard to watch.
1: I watched your recent comedy special, and you make a great point about things that aren't helpful to say, (laughs) calling recovery a
4: healing journey. oh Me making a joke about the healing journey and how it's not a healing journey, that was something in even in my grief group, we would laugh about that. Here we are in our healing journey, and we would laugh like it would make us laugh because – It's not a healing journey. It really is a dull, gray slog. And to be able to laugh about that was so helpful. And by the way, I did have a bit of a unique advantage in that most of my friends are comedians. Yeah, A lot of my friends knew to come at me with jokes. They would do things that would make me laugh, and then the laugh would turn into these relieved tears of, like, my friends have enough love and confidence in me that, like, We're not going to walk on eggshells around you forever. We're going to treat you like the comedian and the friend that we love that we can all fuck around with. And that meant so much. Michelle would say it's chaos be kind, which is a very beautiful statement. People forget one of her other quotes was, it's always the handyman. That was her other quote. And people have sent me that on like samplers and stuff, which makes me laugh. So hard. I love that so much that she had those two sides to her of it's chaos be kind. And by the way, it's always the handyman.
1: Something that I has stuck with me is when Michelle's sister describes how each night when Michelle would put Alice to bed, she would ask her, What was your rose of the day and what was your thorn? Yes. Are you able to say with this experience, what was your rose and what was your thorn?
4: My rose was that what Michelle wanted most from her writing seems to be happening. She didn't want to just be the only person writing a book and investigating like this. She wanted more people to be doing it. She wanted more eyes and minds on this kind of stuff. And that seems to be happening with podcasts like My Favorite Murder and other books, other blogs. And now I think with the HBO series, hopefully that will also keep going. So that's a huge rose. My thorn, it'll forever be my thorn. Beyond just the selfish, I don't get to grow old with her. For me, that's something I'm missing. But the bigger thorn is that she's not here to investigate something else. She doesn't get to turn that extraordinary mind of hers to another problem. And I feel like she was needed. And not to get too dark, but I said this as a joke in one of my specials, but I do kind of mean it. If you're looking at us as a couple... Michelle and me, there's a comedian and an actual crime fighter. Why do you take the crime fighter? Like, why is that the person you take? Like, (laughs) yeah, the world needs this guy's whiny Star Wars jokes. Let's take the (laughs) crime fighter. Like, what the hell? But, you know, what's really weird when you mention that every night they would do Rose and Thorn. But then Alice added a new thing called a bud what's the thing you're looking forward to, to like blooming? That was the thing that Alice added. Oh
1: my God, I'm going to cry. <laughs> so, she, uh,
4: <laughs> so my bud is to see Alice with the things that she was born with from Michelle, but she's being raised by this woman, Meredith Salinger, who is right. so extraordinary in her own way. And it's almost like the amazing raw materials are being shaped by this, genuinely beautiful soul so my bud is Alice
1: I care so much about you as a creative person and as a colleague thank you so much and congratulations again on all the work that you've done
4: Nancy you have no idea how meaningful it is to get to talk to you again I mean this really this made me so when I saw your face and heard your voice I'm like oh it just made me so happy so thank you
1: I hope to see you soon
4: talk to you soon all right bye bye
1: That's it for this episode. Thanks again to Liz Garbus, Elizabeth Wolf, Paul Haynes, and Patton Oswalt for joining us. And thanks to everyone listening at home. We'll be back next week with a finale featuring Chris Pedretti, an activist and survivor. You can listen to that episode right after the sixth and final installment of All Be Gone in the Dark, which premieres next Sunday, August 2nd at 10 p.m. Eastern on HBO. This podcast was produced by HBO in conjunction with Pineapple Street Studios. Our team at Pineapple Street Studios includes executive producers Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Barry Finkel. Our managing producer is Gabrielle Lewis. This episode's lead producer is Emmanuel Hapsis. Our associate producer is Janelle Anderson. Our researcher is Melissa Slaughter. And our editors are Maddie Spronkheiser and Joel Lovell. Our engineer is Noriko Okabe. Original music by Andrew Epin of Basement Crafts. And special thanks to Liz Garbus, Elizabeth Wolf, and Kate Berry, and everyone else at Story Syndicate. This podcast couldn't exist without you. If you like the show and you have a minute, you can review and rate this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you might get your podcasts. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream it on HBO and HBO Max. Until next week.
0: If you or someone you know has been sexually assaulted, you can get help by calling the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or RAIN. You can call their 24-hour hotline at 800-656-HOPE-HOPE or visit hbo.com gone for more resources.